Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And I'm super pumped about this show because I got to go out to Colorado with my family. We went out there for a graduation, but I actually got to sit down with my good buddy, Sean. Now, you guys have heard a ton from Sean. He's been on both podcasts quite a bit. We've covered everything, mountain goats and moose, and you can get the full breakdown of those stories on the Nomadic Outdoorsman podcast. I mean, we did a nightly recap. It was a ton of fun. And I owe a lot of my hunting success in the knowledge and information that I got about Western big game hunting to this man right here. And so we got to sit down in his garage. We actually got interrupted. You'll hear that partway through the show. But we got to sit down, hang out for several hours, just sharing stories, talking strategy. And even after we hopped off the call, we talked for hours longer about what our goal is going to be for this year, what we're going to change up how we're going to chase after some of these monster elk that they ran into last year when I wasn't hunting with them. So it's an awesome episode. Let's jump right in. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show, for the first time ever in person, with Sean Lashinsky, and we've done podcasts together. In fact, the whole Mountain Goat episode on the Nomadic Outdoorsman, or the like six episodes that we did, we did in person, but it was just on a cell phone. So now we actually have all the equipment. I'm pretty pumped about this. Sean, thanks for hopping on, man. Yeah, no problem, bud. Glad you're in town. Dude, today we're going to talk about everything elk hunting. I mean, we're going to break down gear and strategy and, I mean, weapon systems, all of it, because you're the guy who I lost my elk virginity to. It was a sweet moment. <laughs> I bet it was. Uh, yeah, you, you invited like high me. high school. <laughs> we, we, we met, I mean, back in the day in a goose pit of all places. And pretty quickly, we became great friends, and you invited me out to your elk camp. And yep. I say your elk camp. I know your brothers might claim it is theirs, but everybody knows it's Sean's elk camp. That's right. 
what, uh, what is elk hunting for you? I mean, like, I know that this is a huge part of your life. Hunting in general is, but elk hunting specifically, it just seems like a religion for you and your family. Yeah. It's, uh, it's my favorite pastime, man. I, uh, Never want to miss another elk camp. Actually, I shouldn't say another. I never have missed one, and I never intend to. Um, I will quit my job if that's what it takes to stay elk hunting. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like there's a couple different types of hunting that you'd quit your job for if uh, you had to miss it. And, I mean, that just, that just shows your dedication to it because that's something I've said for years. If my job ever keeps me from doing what I love, I will find a new job. And I remember the year you drew your moose tag and we had elk camp. It was like, Hey, just adds up. I'm gone the entire month of October. So sorry, you guys. Yeah. They wouldn't give me a layoff, but I definitely tried. <laughs> hey, you got to do what you got to do. Um, why don't we start by talking about like just a general strategy for elk hunting? Because it's not like the, the way that we elk hunt and the way that you've elk hunted for years, isn't the typical, like YouTube video where they're going in and bugling and trying to get close and get set up one guy 50 yards behind with a call. And then the shooters out front, like this is totally different because it's second rifle season. Yep. Yep. Um, there's not near as much media out there for the rifle hunter. I mean, you can watch archery hunting videos for days, but when you watch somebody hunting with a rifle, it's usually some long range, crazy, phenomenal shot that i couldn't pull off but it's not it's not your average rifle season and people just going out there and hoping to get a good 150 200 yard shot you know yeah so it's it's quite a bit different than it's certainly different than archery right uh but you're at that point you're just trying to find the elk kind of get them in a good spot where you think you can get out in front of them and cut them off or find a good vantage point where you'll have a shot at them as they come pass underneath you or pass in front of you. Um, it's, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, I've come to love it. I grew up archery hunting elk. And then when I, had about 10 years in we had no luck i'm not a good archery elk hunter but uh we didn't have any luck then and started hunting with rifles because my dad's shoulders went bad and we needed uh my brothers and i talked and we said it's more important for dad to be out there with us than it is for us to just kill one with a bow so we started hunting that way and i'm glad that we do it because it's been such a great tradition with my family and everything involved to hunt them that way and and every year man we see dad out on the trail carrying his rifle and i couldn't be happier so i love that we're going that route but uh as far as our strategy goes you know we generally try to find them the day before and hopefully make a play on them the next morning or kind of pattern them and know the general area and then we will look for a high point somewhere where we can locate them from above then next day be there overlooking whatever area they're in and then figure out our play on how we're going to attack them from there yeah well and you guys i mean the hunt for you and the preparation of the hunt for you guys starts 
a, a solid week at least before actually getting out there and chasing after them. Because the way that elk camp is set up, you've got people pulling toy haulers and campers and trailers and, I mean, loads of firewood, you name it, you guys have it out there. And so I know that my first year doing it, I would come over quite a bit because I lived out here in Colorado at the time. And, you know, you'd have the toy hauler out front, getting everything ready, packing up gear, making sure your checklists were all complete, and then just making sure everything's in working order. Uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit, about Elk Camp, why you decided to go that route with Elk Camp? Because, again, like the romantic side of elk hunting, everyone thinks, you know, like minimal and you're packing into the backcountry with as little as you can. You're making it happen. But you guys have an awesome setup to where you can still do that, but you have a main base camp set up already. Yeah, we, like I said, a lot of it has to do with comforts for dad is where it started. And then we uh, had a, we just all kind of used to camp at a campground and used campers and hunt out of there and drive an hour every morning and now we're back every evening. And we eventually found a spot where, we can kind of be in them or camp kind of close to them and within striking distance with an ATV. So that's kind of the way that we've adopted lately, and it's great. It's a huge chunk of public land. I think it's 60 or 70,000 acres that we get a hunt that's all BLM and all attached through some ATV trails. But uh, then we... So we all base camp kind of on that property and then ride four-wheelers around from there and just try to locate them for a couple days. But uh, once we figure it out, then we kind of make a plan, try to attack them kind of from all sides. And it's definitely worked out. I guess it's never worked out, the fact that we are trying to hit them from all sides because we've never, like, ambushed them and done it right. <laughs> but we always end up shooting a few and handful of people depending on what group they're in are definitely successful no matter what once we kind of locate them and have them pinned down to a uh, draw or a finger because they're generally there every day after we find them yeah yeah and i mean i guess part of it then is getting out there early so that opening day you're not having to spend it scouting you're getting out there and trying to find them the night i mean i think typically we get there two days early get camp set up for the most part that first night. And if we can get out in glass and just see if we can see them moving, because although you'll find them in the same areas year after year, they might be moved way closer to camp or in, in a different Valley or bowl or Ridge line than you normally go and hunt on opening day. Yep. Yep. We, I, I do have one little honey hole where I can kind of count on finding them, but in general, we're, trying to find them and locate them in a different location every year and then figuring out how, what it's going to take to get to them and attack them from there. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good strategy to try to find them in multiple locations because as I discovered early on my first year elk hunting, we had other hunters completely blow up a spot that we had found elk and we really thought we could make a play. And all of a sudden, we see the elk take off, and we quickly realize it's because there's 
I think there were three or four hunters dropping down in on them. And if that was our only spot, you know, we would have been screwed for the whole week. But luckily you had multiple backup plans. Yep. Yep. This year, in fact, we had a group of fellas that uh, kind of overtook our little honey hole. And they hunted it hard for four or five days, and they were there at, like, four in the morning. We'd hear them drive past the camp, and we don't move on them until just before sunup. But uh, we knew the, we, every morning at sunup, we'd drive up to our spot, and these guys were already in there. And luckily, they weren't hunting it, right? I'm sure they won't be back. But <laughs> they uh, I don't think they were ever successful. That's part of the... F- chess game of hunting public property is just somebody can come and steal your spot but if they don't hunt it right it it doesn't matter if they were there or not and luckily these guys didn't hunt it wrong enough to screw up the spot but they certainly i don't think were successful so i'm hoping that we don't catch them in our honey hole next year but um it, it, that's ex- you're exactly right with just having multiple spots that you can go and hunt and some honey holes that you know you can count on them and put the time into glass and make sure that they aren't in there before you move to the next one has kind of been our strategy and it's paid off for a lot of years why don't you talk about the idea of not not getting out there at 4 a.m like those guys did because i know that was a big shock to me and i've i've mentioned it on the podcast before but one of the things that you taught me was we don't move during dark because you're passing up a ton of really good elk country that you could, you could spot them, you know, close to the trail potentially. Yeah. Um, so I know I've heard you talk about it on the podcast before, and it's not that we don't leave camp before sunup. And that's kind of the way I took it when I heard you say it before. But generally speaking, like if we know we've got an eight mile quad ride, we'll ride the quads in the dark. But that last, as soon as I park the quad and I start hiking, I want to have some decent visuals on what's in front of me and know what's ahead of me for the simple fact that I've watched an elk uh, wind me at 540 yards and I only know that because I was ranging it at the exact moment that I watched it lift its head, watched its nostrils flare, and then it 180 and followed the exact same path out of there that it came in. And 540 yards was an eye-opener to me because that's a long way. That's further than I can shoot at this point, really. Yeah. So um, when I saw that, I said, man, their nose works no matter what time of day or what my visibility is i need to make sure that i'm out of that zone while i uh, before i even know that they're there so i definitely at one point decided like i'm it doesn't do me any good to hike three miles in when i'm cutting fresh tracks at two miles in knowing that they could have been there all night and the only reason they're not there now is because i marched through the middle of them yeah so after a few years of being like man they were here last night and we could have been in them blah blah blah. i was like man what if they were here 10 minutes ago and never made a sound and because at 200 yards 50 elk can wind you 
and meander through that grass or that sagebrush or whatever you're hunting in and never make a peep to somebody that's 200 yards away. You'll never pick that up. But if they can wind you, you're going to lose that battle every time. Yeah, and I mean, as as a hunter with a rifle especially, your number one tool is your eyes. And if you can't see them, if you're taking away your number one advantage on an elk, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Yeah, that there's no element of surprise when they've already winded you and yeah. you don't even know that you blew it. And I've said it before, but I I I believe even if you're a whitetail hunter, archery, tree stand, you could be blowing it on the buck you've been hunting all season long. If you walk in in the dark, because he could wind you, hear you. He might be 10 yards in front of you, and if your headlamp's not pointed right at him, you would never know he was there, and he could let you walk right by him. It, at least, if it if the sun is up, I stand a chance. Yeah. If it's pitch black, then they can walk away from you, and you'll never even know that they were ever there. Yeah, and I mean... That makes perfect sense. And for, for people who are going out for their first Western hunt, I highly recommend going after them with a rifle. Although you might think like, oh, man, I want to do it with a bow. I want to do it with a bow. There's part of the hunt is just learning the animals before you really like put yourself in a position where you have to be 50, 60 yards from them to get a shot. And that's why like when I moved out here, I actually traded my bow to a guy because I wanted a rifle that I could shoot long range and something that had the knockdown power for an elk. And I said, my odds, I mean, I think, what is it in Colorado? Like 3% with a bow to get a bull elk? I mean, it's something very, very low. And I said, I'm going to get out there for a couple of years. Even if I never pull the trigger, I want to learn the animals first before I... <laughs> you know, decrease my chances by that much because I'm carrying a bow. And so I think that's a that's a really good opportunity. And there's over-the-counter options. I mean, you can buy a tag as soon as you cross that Colorado line on your way out to your first elk hunt. Yeah, as long as you buy it on Friday, the day before the season opens. Yep. You can't buy one once the season's open, but as long as you're here early, they'll sell you a tag. Now, I'm curious because I don't, I don't actually know the answer to this. I know when you're applying for points and stuff, you actually have to have a tag in the system already. So a small game tag, which will cost you about a hundred bucks. Is that the same if you want a big game tag over the counter or can you just buy the big game tag without buying the small game first? Honestly, I couldn't answer that for you. Um, I think, I think it's probably just for points. But as a non-resident, I can promise you anything. I've never had to look into that part of it. Well, the other thing to think about in Colorado, it might not be this way in most Western states. They have to verify you in their system before they sell you a tag. The verification is for your hunter's education. And yep. that is you can go that route or you can just show your hunter's ed card at the venue. If you're going to... Get verified. You have to do it, I think, at a Division Wildlife Office. And if you go to Walmart or a gas station and buy a tag, 
I don't think they'll stop you as long as you have your hunter's education card. As long as you can prove it. Like, I think yep. the reason I had to do that beforehand was because I no longer had my hunter's ed card and I couldn't find my hunter's ed number. Yep. I'd never had to do that for any of the other tags that I had. But then coming out here, I immediately made sure all of my buddies got online first and got verified online by proving their hunter's education. And some of them just called a field office, talked to somebody. They were able to look it up in the system and verify them so that we didn't get out here and realize, hey, you have to go and talk to an agent when it's like the most busy time of the year for them we could have been in trouble had they not done that first. Yeah, but I think if you have your physical card in your possession, you're good uh, to go. Yep, you just have to show that. So that might be the best route for any new hunters coming out is just call call into wherever you got it, <clears throat> whatever state you got your hunter's ed in, and just get a reprint if you don't already have it so that when you come out here, you don't have all the hassle. You can just show the card and buy the tag. Yep, and if you're here... And there's a division wildlife office open that you have a chance to stop by and and show your card. If you show their card to them, then they can enter you in the system as verified. Nice. And I think it's good for 48 of the 50 states. Oh, sweet. So I think I think they're pretty compatible to most everybody out there. That's good to know. Um, let's talk about <clears throat> strategy once you get to a spot. Like, say you've done the drive-in, you decide to start hiking. What, like, what's your go-to if you think elk are in a certain area? Like, your approach, are you, are you getting close to them right out of the gate? Are you trying to get eyes on them long before? Um, how do you go about pursuing an actual elk instead of just going in and blowing your chance? Uh, you're meaning like if I'm glassing them from 800 or 1,000 yards, how am I going to approach them from there? Yeah. I would start by figuring out what the wind is. I definitely want to know what the wind's got going on. Um, I'm going to look at the direction that they're moving. I'm going to look at how fast they're moving because with elk, you may not ever catch them. Uh-oh. We've got visitors. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. We took a short hour and a half intermission. Uh, Sean's brother and nephew surprised us, and we kind of hung out and caught up for a bit, but we're going to jump back into this conversation. So once you figure out the direction of wind, the direction that they're moving, and the speed that they're moving, what comes next? Um, definitely look at the vantage points or what I need to do to get hopefully above them or at least in their path and somewhere where I can cut them off and have a shot opportunity. Um, ideally, in the country where we hunt, it's getting above them. I mean... We hunt from the top of the hill down, and it's it's only because that's the only way to hunt that ground, really. I mean, public access and the routes and and trails that you can use are all running ridge lines. So for us, you get above them and you hunt them. Um, I certainly prefer to be above them. 
it's a lot better to have that crow's nest kind of a viewpoint on them and watch what they're doing and then anticipate and get ahead of them and cut them off. But still, when you're looking from the bottom up, because of false summits and just shelves or things like that, or even a handful of trees, you can't see them. But if you get above them and you're looking from the top of the trees down, you can watch them just meander right through them. Or even in, with a false summit or something, you can usually catch them coming out the other side. And if you're below them, you can, they can be 40 yards away from you. You'll never even know that they pass by you. So I always try to be above them and looking down on them. But uh, they're, that's definitely my plan. Figure out some way to cut them off and get just figure out their path, get in front of it, make sure you have a shot when you get there. Make sure that there's no trees or anything too tall in front of you to block your vantage point and hopefully be able to squeeze off a shot. So now you say, like, cut them off. Are you typically when you're hunting them, are they on their feet moving or do you ever wait for them to bed and try to make a play on them at that point? Um, I usually catch them on their feet and they're moving and we start making our play then and just cutting the distance. Uh, there's definitely been times that by the time we got there, they were starting to bed down and, that's a tough equation because when you have 50 elk and they're bedded down, they've all got their head pointed in a different direction and they're looking to pick up any movement. Um, let alone when you get there, the one that you picked out or decided you wanted to shoot maybe on the wrong side of a tree or anything like that. And so shooting embedded has never been an option for us because when we have caught up to them, they're just looking the wrong direction or we can't find the bull out of the herd. Um, it's worked out when, when the cow that was watching us picked something up and got nervous and stood up, the bull did too. But when we, the 10 minutes before that we were watching the herd, we never saw him in the herd. But at the moment that the rest of them got nervous, he just appeared out of nowhere. And we were lucky enough to get a good shot at him and, seal the deal on it but it's not open enough country there i mean you could do that with an antelope or something like that but with elk in the country that we hunt them in they're they can hide pretty easy they could disappear and they're they're pretty magical they can just vanish out of nowhere <laughs> they definitely can but it makes sense that that if they're moving you can get set up in a spot and if you can pick a clearing that you think they're going to be coming through, then, you know, hopefully you can get your shooting sticks or, you know, for, for those people that like to try to lay prone, which the country that we hunt, it's not really possible at all. But, I mean, to have, to have that window where you're like, all right, they're going to come through this 20-yard gap or this 10-yard gap or whatever or heading out to a meadow, you make them expose themselves instead of you having to continue to move in order to get in position for a shot. Yeah. Anytime I've tried to get close to them, it's never worked out for me. It's better to find a way to ambush them. If, if I try to pursue them, there's too many eyes, too many ears, and definitely too many noses to get close enough to not have a problem. 
Um, I generally like to be 300 or so yards away from them in the country that we hunt. If if you're ever within 20 yards, you're never going to see them. The, just the cover on the hillside that you're on is so thick that I've literally seen elk walk right past me at 50 yards and seen nothing but antlers and never once saw a single patch of hair on the whole thing. So I generally like to hunt them across the valley. And when they're meandering through trees and moving around on the other hillside, I can watch them the entire time and have a shot on them anytime that they're not directly behind a tree. And if they're on the same hillside as you are, we just don't stand a chance in the terrain that we're in. Um, I've definitely... I think of all the elk killed at elk camp, there's been one that was under 100 yards and on the same hillside. And that guy just happened to sneak in on one that was sleeping underneath a tree, and he got it the moment it stood up. But like I said, about three or four different times I've had him under 50 yards and never got a shot. Dang. Yeah, that that was a... That was a big eye-opening moment for me when you started talking about, uh, or when you first told me about hunting them from an opposing ridgeline or hillside. And I didn't fully understand it until I got out there in the country because that scrub oak, I mean, it's so thick, or the cedars, you know, there's just so much obstructing your view. And the terrain change is so fast that you might, even if it was completely open ground, you might only be able to see 40 yards in front of you before another drop happens and they could all just be hanging out right underneath you, which that brings me to the second year that I went out hunting where we parked the side-by-sides and started making a play on this huge herd of elk. I mean, probably 175 to 200 of them. We started going and I looked back and there were three bulls 50 yards under the side-by-sides. We had like a half a dozen people out there. Nobody had any idea that they were there until we got far enough out on this finger to where we could do that whole strategy and look back and there they were. Yep. Yep. The other reason I really like to be out in front of them and above them is because then you can kind of see the clearing that they're working towards or the gap where you're going to be able to get your shot. And one thing I really like to do at that point is to just range a couple trees or something that's out in front of them and in the clearing And that way I just have a good idea of when they hit that clearing, the tree on the backside is 375, the tree on the close side is 325, and if they walk through the middle, I'm going to hold it 350. Yep. And that's how it worked out on your first elk, is we had a lot of cows running through a meadow, or a little clearing. I mean, it was probably 40 yards circle but they were running right through the middle of it. Well, the very first cow that hit that opening, I ranged her when you were getting set up still, and I pinned her at 323, and I said, hey, man, that bull's coming. He's not going to leave those cows, but when he hits the middle of that opening, he'll be 323 yards. And I remember you making a great shot at him, and, and just when you know your yardage in those big open country, it – you see them and they look like they could be 100, 150 yards out and you range them and they're 275. Yeah. It's just, you're looking across so much vast openness to a little tree st- that they're standing next to that might only be 
20 feet tall. Well, that elk looks like it's giant compared to that tree. Yeah. And then you realize how far away the whole situation is from where you're at. And it's, uh, it gives you a little bit of time by not being close to have time to get set up and to catch your breath and, uh, let those nerves get out of your system and to be prepared for them to walk into your shooting lane than it is to try to rush a shot and to sneak in on them and get close. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole range thing out there, it really does mess with your mind. Like when you get out there and you just see how big the country is, you could spot elk at a mile. I mean, like you can legitimately see elk at a mile if they're out in an opening. And you would never think that they look that big from a mile away. You might think, ah, oh, they're like six, 700 yards away. And then you range it and it's like, oh man, like we're not even close. It's yeah. going to take half a day to get close enough to them to like put a shot on them. And one of the things that I've actually really enjoyed doing, it's kind of uh, in the downtime when we're glassing, we'll just randomly pick out a rock or a tree on an opposing ridge line, and then we'll all throw out our guesses as to how far it is, and then we see. And it took me a lot of tries before I actually got even within 50 yards of having the right range. You know, I was a couple hundred yards off on most of them. But the more that you do that, the more familiar you are. But having a range finder, I mean, you can't go without it out there. Yeah, we actually started doing that archery hunting. And and at that rate, we were ranging targets at 35, 50, you know, you just see a stump and say, Hey, how far is that? And everybody would give their guess. And then we would all, once everybody had their guess in, we would range it. And then we all had judo tips on our, uh, arrows. We always had one or two arrows with a judo tip in case we saw a grouse or something awesome. And, uh, but we would, pick like a random stick that's just sticking out there by itself. And we'd all say, Oh, you know, it's 35 yards, 40 yards, 42 yards. And we'd range it say, Oh, it's 37. And then we would all shoot our judo tip at that. And it helped me with my just gauging distance, first of all. And then second of all, shooting at those distances. And we got to the point where we were like picking out a daisy on the side of a hill and we would all just guess at it. And then you'd have to, your range finder wouldn't pick it up, but you'd find the rock right next to it and range that rock. And then we would all shoot at the daisy. And we all got to the point where we were hitting that daisy, taking turns who got to go first. And <laughs> if you miss, man, you didn't hear the end of it until you got your next shot. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, to, to have little things like that while you're out there, it definitely breaks up the time. You can have fun while you're out there instead of being so serious. And that's, that's one thing I'd highly encourage anybody going out there their first time. Go out there to enjoy it. Don't go out there like with the only thing on your mind is killing an animal. Yeah, that's good. Like you want to be dialed in. You want to have that mindset like I'm out here to to find an animal and harvest it. But you got to enjoy the process because even without bringing back meat, you can still have a very successful hunt going out there, spending time with friends, glassing country, having encounters with animals. And, and yeah, success is in more than just bringing back meat. Absolutely. I, uh, I've only ever killed four elk in my life and been hunting elk for 28 years. So 
I've uh, helped a lot of people get their first animal, and you included. But also, like to me, it's just about that experience and that time in the woods. It's not about killing them at all. Yeah, I'd much rather take somebody for their first time and help them get one than for me to shoot my fourth elk. I mean, there's the one or two I see every year that are the exception. But in general, I'd rather see my daughter or one of my nephews or a friend fire that shot than me. So. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of people out there who say that, but then the moment of truth comes and they want to be the first one to fire. But I can attest, like, when I went out there hunting with you, I think you said at that point, over the past seven years, you had helped eight new hunters get an animal. And I was like, holy cow, like this is, this is the guy to go with. We'll see if it actually comes true. And then the day came and you said, we're going to get, we're going to get a bull today. Like it's going to happen. You lined out the game plan. We did a lot of what you just said. I mean, the whole play in the wind, figuring out the direction, finding the elk, making a play on them. And it all came together and it happened again. And so I will say you shooting only four elk at this point is not for a lack of you knowing how to elk hunt. It's because you're prioritizing getting other people elk before yourself. Uh, I really want to see people share the passion that I have with elk hunting. And so going back to what you were saying, as far as being successful, man, there's no better way to guarantee somebody's going to enjoy this for life than to be successful. It's not the most important thing. And to me, I don't, I don't, judge the success of my trip on taking home an elk myself. But as long as the camp brings home elk, then we did well. And with, because I elk hunt with my family, we all, it doesn't matter who shoots anything. We all come together and we all process it together and we all divvy it up the same and share it. And everybody's freezers are full by the end of the year. I don't think I've bought, beef and or any red meat to be honest in seven or eight years but that's because as a group we all go out we help each other when somebody's successful we people come out of the woodwork to help you pack one out and uh answer that radio call when you say hey i need some help there's people that are just dropping in with an empty pack just to help you carry yours out it's pretty awesome when it happens yeah that i mean that aspect of it is almost as fun as going out and hunting myself. Like I look forward to getting those calls. Like I got one down and the country is so big out there. You might not hear the gunshot. Like it might not be that far, uh, but you can get out there and, and you get the call or you get up to cell service and you've got a message saying like, Hey, we need help. We got a bull down in this area. And then you go back and do it. And we've done that for people, not even in our hunting camp. Like the one year it was some guys from California and they had camped next to you guys for a few years leading up to that, but they needed help. And it was, gosh, it was what, 11 at night or something like that. I think it was nine when we found out they had one down and it was 11 before we got there and got to them. Yeah. But like, yeah, we hiked in 500 yards in pitch black with headlamps only because we could see their headlamps down below. And we, Luckily, we killed an elk in there in years past, so we kind of knew the route to take to get there and uh, be efficient about it. But, yeah, they were in there, and they had their hands full with a full bowl down and only two guys to get it out. 
and they were planning on hanging everything in the tree and coming back the next day and they said when they saw our headlights come up over the hill they knew that they had the help they needed and they were just thanking us for everything we did to help them so i i just like to see people be successful i mean that's what it's all about and that's i mean you can say what you want about recruiting new hunters and the crowding of the spaces and everything but at the same time we need the voters and we need people that are of like mindset to help share our passion and help keep this tradition alive yeah absolutely and yeah no better way to get people back out there or to even if you've got a new hunter in your group to just show them like what's right you go and help somebody when they need help like we've done that a couple times um but i kind of want to switch because you taught we talked about people radioing for help and stuff like that and that brings me to the equipment you use for communication and even mapping to know where you are because the land is huge and one wrong turn could get you in a world of trouble really quickly. So what are you using when you're out there as far as mapping goes? What are you using as far as communication goes with the rest of your hunting party? So we use, I use Onyx religiously for all of my hunting. Um, just satellite photos or, you know, where we all kind of, it's all BLM land. So just knowing what's BLM, what's private and, we aren't uh, hunting the fence in the same terms as a eastern hunter hunting a 30-acre plot, but we're still, the elk generally like to be on those big ranches, and we're hunting the fringe of the public to catch them coming back into the mountains off of a nice hayfield or big pasture that all the cows are haven't been put out on yet, and they got good grass. That's where the elk are going to be feeding every night. And so we're catching them when they're coming back up into the foothills and, you know, get into the base of the mountain and then watch them go up of the mountain and find out kind of what their route is day one. And then we try to cut them off day two or, or that evening we'll catch them going back down to the same field and same meadow. Yeah. The, the mapping system that Onyx has is unbelievable. I mean, the pinpoint accuracy of it, and then the fact that you can download the maps for offline use, so you don't have to be using cell service, you can have airplane mode turned on on your phone and still have full access, figure out where you're going. It'll track you still through your GPS, even though you're not using any cell signal. Yeah, the first year that we hunted that unit, I was using just an old topo map, and I argued with a friend of mine for 10 minutes whether or not the elk was on public land and I could shoot it or not. And he swore the whole time that it wasn't. And I knew where I was at and I knew where what I was looking at. And finally I had to say, Hey, fine, I'll take the shot and I'll take the <laughs> heat if I and come to find out we were about a quarter mile legal. But he was if it was him on the trigger, he we would have never got that elk. And I just was looking at, you know, the topo or the topographical uh the topography of the ground as well as what the map was showing me. And at that point I knew that I was, there was a point. And as long as he was left of the point, he was legal. And 
uh, that's what map told me. And I looked at him and I looked at the point on the map and I looked at the point in real life. And finally I said, Hey man, that's fine. I'm going to shoot him and we'll, I'll deal with it if I have to. And like I said, I think it was probably about 600 yards legal. And that's to this day, that's still the same part of the unit where I know I can go kill an elk every day. But now that we know exactly where that line is, there's, there's a small tree that on Google map or on Onyx is the property boundary between the public and private. And we know once they get left of that tree, we're good every time. So it's nice. It's mind blowing. What can, what the new mapping systems can do for you right now. I remember the first time I looked at Onyx and I was actually out hunting and to see it, just narrow it down to the absolute tree that I was standing under. And not only that, but it was like the lower left side of the tree on my map. And I was like, this is exactly where I'm standing. And then to think that three years before that, I was piecing together what I could off of a topo map and trying to figure out where I was in the world on off of that compared to it dropping a pin literally on my forehead was pretty, pretty incredible. And like I said, man, I'm to the point now where if I know that elk's 10 yards legal, I will take that shot because it's, it's on public land. I don't need, I don't need to worry about it anymore. As long as it's left of that tree, the tree that I'm talking about is on public land, but it's literally the border. So as long as it's left of the tree, I already know that I can shoot at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And like being back to a unit year after year, you, you really figure that out, even though we still use Onyx and, you know, just make sure, um, you can range, you can, you can do the line distance on Onyx. And so if you're ranging something and you do the line distance on there and it matches up, like you just know you're good all the time. Yeah. The only bad part about that is hike outs when it tells you you're <laughs> only a hundred yards from the top of the mountain, but you're looking up at it and you realize that you're 75 yards below the peak. And you know that it's as much vertical as it is horizontal. <laughs> That's that could be a little discouraging, but it that beats uh, knowing that you're 200 yards out, I guess. Oh yeah, to to have that type of software, but then also the communication side of it, like to be able to get in touch with other people. You know, uh, Garmin InReach they make a great device that you can that you can use the InReach and actually text from your phone to other people, and especially if you have multiple people out there without cell service. You can be texting back and forth with each other. I remember the one year, uh, a couple guys from the group got lost and we were up, <laughs> we got, we got up to the top of the mountain and we kind of made a habit of, uh, getting up to the top of the mountain each night and calling our wives and, you know, chatting with the wives and kids. And, I remember we got up there and we had all of these missed calls and messages from a couple guys that were, <laughs> that were out hunting and they're like, man, we're lost. We have no idea where we are. We think we're at this point of this mountain. And so we're like, Oh, well that's not very far from where we are on the, on the, um, like just looking at it. I was like, you guys, you guys are only a couple hundred yards away. And so I was like, uh, can you, like flip around with your headlamp and just shine your headlamp 360 degrees. And so they're like, yeah, we did. And I'm like, crap, we didn't see him at all. 
And so we're like, are you sure you're on that side of the mountain? They're like, we're pretty sure that's where we're at. And so all of this is happening as we're talking to them on the phone. And then one of the guys was like, I mean, do you have a round in your gun? Yeah. And we're like, all right, do this for us. We normally wouldn't, but like it's freezing out right now. And you guys can't stay out there because they were on four wheelers. They didn't have all their, all their like backcountry gear set up with them or their spike camp stuff with them. And so he's like, all right, this is what I want you to do. Get it in a safe direction, pull the trigger. And we're on the phone with them and we're like, all right, let us know when you do. And they're like, we just did. And we'd never heard the shot. And we're like, oh crap, you guys are a long, <laughs> long ways off. And thankfully, uh, we had some younger people with us and it was actually your daughter who said, you guys have cell service, just have them drop a pin. <laughs> and we're like, oh my gosh, we're so stupid and old and we can't believe we didn't figure this out before. But yeah, they dropped a pin and they were probably a good two miles from where they thought they were. Um, they just took one wrong turn and they thought they were coming up on camp and they realized that they weren't. And so we drove over and got to them. Yeah, that was a funny situation. <laughs> But it, it can happen. And those were guys like Tubby. He's been out to camp a bunch. Like that wasn't his first year out there. Like he's driven those roads multiple times. But when it gets dark, things can change. They can seem totally different. Well, and it's easy to in in scrub oak and sagebrush and everything to just miss one turn. And yeah, I think I think they were probably eight miles from where they thought they were. Cause oh yeah, I guess it probably was that far. I was thinking like two, but yeah, they were. Uh, it's it's six miles to the top, and they were a couple miles the wrong direction from there. Yeah, that's true. Dang, that was yeah, that was interesting, and I can't imagine being in that situation like by yourself. No. So even if even if it means you're out there and there's a neighboring camp, and you get their information just in case things go south. You know, if you're going out there by yourself or one or two people that are staying together, you don't want to have to spend a night out there, especially in the mountains. Weather wow. can change in a hurry. And I think that year we got snow like three or four out of the nights that we were there. Yeah, absolutely. And and there was uh, one night that it was negative 18. We didn't hunt for an entire day because it was blizzard conditions and terribly cold. And yeah. One of the big things that I'm going to say is, like, be friendly to everybody that's around you because you never know who's going to save your butt. Yep. And we've seen that a handful of times, whether it's a flat tire on the trail or running out of water and bumping into somebody in the middle of nowhere. And funny story is that every time that that's happened, it's been the same guys from California that we bailed <laughs> out shooting that elk at the end of the night, but... It's because we have a great relationship with them that they can call us and say, hey, man, I got one down. Don't worry that we aren't going to be at camp tonight. And that's when we said, hey, we got nothing going on and we're leaving tomorrow. So we aren't getting up early to hunt or anything. So we can go give them a hand. And that guy got his whole elk carried out just because he's been a good neighbor up at, up on the mountain for the last six years. So... Just getting along and being neighborly and friendly is, you never know. You know, the guy the guy that you meet on the trail that's 
somebody that you think you're competing with might have a mule deer tag and might have just left a herd of 70 elk and he's happy to give away where they're at on the mountain because he doesn't even have an elk tag. It doesn't suit him to not tell you. Yep. But if you've been friendly with him for the last couple of days or wave to him even is all it takes sometimes on the trail as you pass them, if, if they don't have the same tag in their pocket that you do, they might be more than happy to help you out and point you in the right direction. Yeah, and I, I've noticed that plenty of times out there already, just in the few years that I've hunted, talking to people and just finding out what tags other people have. Or, you know, they might go out there every year for elk hunting. And like this past year, I had a mule deer tag. And I was I was helping out, giving information to people. They were helping out, giving information to me. And the camaraderie needs to stick around with hunting. It, we need to get away from the, hey, we're all competing against each other. Yeah, you're all going after similar animals or the same species. But at the end of the day, we're all out there for the same purpose. We all care about the wildlife and we want each other to be successful. So just treat each other the way that you would want them to treat you. Absolutely. There's been times where uh, people in our group, I wasn't there the day that I'm talking about, but people in our group pulled up to a spot where we normally catch some elk. And that same group of people said, hey, man, we've, we've seen some in here. We're getting ready to make a play on them. And they were able to put them in a little bit of a pinch. And both parties walked away with elk that day because there was enough people then to kind of make and execute a good plan of if we shoot at them now, they're going to leave this direction and somebody there to cut them off and bounce them back. And I think they ended up with three or four elk that day, just bouncing them a little bit around and both parties getting an opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, when you can cover exits because you're working with other people and you don't have enough people in your group to do it, that's, I mean, what a what a cool opportunity and a cool story. Yeah, well, let alone the fact that uh, one of those guys ended up being uh, having a pretty good sponsorship, and we both worked out a deal with him to get some nice products from them uh, through his connections. Yeah. Yeah, and, got and he really was happy cool to help us and say, "Hey, man, I, you know, I'm, I've got some people I work with, and they have product that they're happy to uh, share, and and I get it at forty percent off." And we all just put together a little order, and we all end up with some nice binos or scopes or whatever out of the deal. But if we would have been dicks and flipped him off, it would have never happened, you know. Oh yeah, I remember we were we were halfway through the pack out when he said, Hey, if you guys ever need anything, you just let me know. And we're like, all right. And then he a hundred percent came through on that. Yeah. Let uh, alone, he brought us a bottle of crown Royal when, <laughs> when we got back to camp, he said, I owe you guys. Oh, you didn't know me all that. Yeah, no, that was, that was awesome. And they're definitely a good group of guys. I mean, we, yeah. we became pretty good friends, all swap numbers and, you know, stayed in touch with them. But, um, speaking of gear and continuing on, uh, with the stuff that you use, let's dive into your rifle system. And I know you had mentioned, you know, you'd like to be around that 300 yard mark, uh, when you're going after them, not too close to spook them off, not too far to not make an ethical shot. What are you using for your rifle system? I know it's changed 
a bit in the past years. Um, currently, I'm still hunting with a 270. Um, it has the Leupold, I think the X3. I couldn't tell you what the power is. But there's no... Uh, it's just a basic crosshair system. There's no yardage marks for anything above and beyond that. So I've recently started uh, putting together a 300 wind mag with a VX5 HD. Um, it's got a big scope. I think a 4x24. Um, it's more of a long-range gun. It's pretty heavy. I don't know how I'm going to like it in the field yet. But it will at least... With the 270, I have to use the old Kentucky windage and just ho do a holdover. And I'm excited to be more confident in the shot that I'm getting ready to take. So finding a scope with a adjustable turret and something that I can dial in down to the yardage is going to be fun. But from at least the system that I put together that comes with the cost of added weight in the field yeah the to be confident in your system and to be confident in the yardage that you're hoping to shoot is a huge factor in hunting like you should never guess if you're going to put that animal down when you pull the trigger absolutely if you do you're shooting too far so the with using kentucky windage on 270 i'm at a bit of an advantage that my brother has a very nice range in his backyard and I've got to practice that holdover. It's not something that somebody should just dial in their rifle at 100 yards and then two weeks later, having never shot it any other time all, see all year long, zero it at 100 and then turn around two weeks later and try a shot at 350 or 400. You shouldn't be pulling and praying when you're elk hunting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a better time and place for that. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, even even with the Kentucky windage deal, you're comfortable with your system. You've been shooting it for years. Yep. You know the drop of a bullet at different yardages, so you know how much to hold over. So it's not like you're just guessing. You do have an accurate range on it, and then you know exactly where to aim on the animal or just above the animal in order to make an ethical shot on it. And And... You know, I'm sure there's going to be people who are like, oh, that's BS. You can't do that. There's plenty of people who do it all the time. They're very successful. I've seen you shoot. You know how to shoot a rifle. But there's nothing like having <laughs> custom turrets or having speed turrets to where you can punch in the information on your phone. Or this year, I'm hoping to be bringing out the new Vortex ballistic compensating uh, binoculars where it will actually have it an in-field display that tells me my elevation and wind, windage adjustment for my specific setup once I range an animal, which I'm really pumped. I'm just pumped to target shoot, really. Like, that is going to be so cool. I, I've i used the Hornady app for years. Uh, you, you know, you can put your rifle in there. You can put the scope height on that. You can punch in actually there's like different scopes that you actually can select and it it tells you everything you need to and that's what i've done for a long time but to have it all in one handheld device being binoculars 
I can range it and then it tells me everything I need to. So there's a lot of cool technology coming out. I, this is my first year going to trade shows and I went to the hunt expo in Salt Lake city. And one of the booths I went to, actually they were talking about a competitor, but one of the companies has paired with a mapping software. And now they make a range finder that when you range an object, it knows which direction you're pointing and it will actually drop a pin on the mapping software of what you just ranged. Wow. So in Colorado, I know that there's a little bit of an issue with uh, electronics and scopes. I don't know if they've got that worked out or not, but I know that Burris had an eliminator that had a battery in it and using your yardage and your windage used to create a place a dot inside of the scope that would that dot was supposed to be your zero hold and at at the time that it came out it was illegal in colorado like i said i don't know if colorado's changed that law or not but at the time it was illegal because it accepted a battery nothing ever emitted from the scope or there was no red dot on the side of an elk at thousand yards but it would tell you the red dot inside the scope was your hold on that elk. So just be careful and know your state laws wherever you're headed. But I know at one point that one was definitely illegal in Colorado. I'm going to have to take a look because I have currently on my setup, I recently got a new scope and it does you, there's 10 different light settings where it will illuminate the crosshairs. Now there's no like compensating stuff inside of it but it just makes makes it glow depending on your lighting conditions. So I need to check on that before I bring my rifle out. Yeah, in Colorado, that could be illegal. And I, I don't know. I, th- I think there was some stuff going through to try to legalize that. And I just don't know the status of it. But just for the listeners, I wanted to let them know that that was a possibility. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at that and see, like, is it illegal to have it with a battery in it or is it illegal even just because it can accept a battery. Like, I need to I need to figure all that out. Well, I think even in Colorado, I, I don't know that illuminated knocks are legal on archery equipment. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think lad, here in Colorado, they've kind of drawn a line on if it accepts a battery or not. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to do some more research into that. Um, luckily I've got some time to figure it out and I've got another scope that does not accept a battery that is sitting brand new in a box. So maybe I'll make some changes if I have to. I could be wrong, but I know at one point both of those were illegal. Um, what, what other equipment do you bring out? Like what, we won't go into a full breakdown of everything, but maybe give me some of the top equipment that you swear by that you will forever use and then also some that you just won't use again that you've taken out and realized it just didn't cut it in the in the mountains um definitely some things i would use again number one would probably be uh my trigger sticks and in the country that we hunt those are very valuable tool um i know dan you can attest to uh what they can do, like it's the cut, the terrain we're in isn't suitable for uh, bipod just because the 
like covered. a gun mounted bipod. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it's if you can't stand and shoot behind it, you won't shoot over the vegetation that's right in front of the barrel. So I like the trigger sticks because they're the right elevation for me. But also I use them as a hiking stick the whole time. And I also will uh, use them when I'm packing out, take the load off of my back and just collapse them all the way down and put them underneath my pack and then take a half step uphill and let it kind of hold the load of the pack for a minute while I'm catching my breath and getting my second wind. Um, so that's definitely a big one for me. Uh, where we all come, we don't have water. So as far as filtration or anything, there's nothing like that. We have to carry our own water in all the time. But we haven't found a water source that's reliable enough to hike in without it. Yep. Um, we do jet boil and a lot of the vacuum sealed dehydrated meals. Um, other than that, I use, I just recently went with first light gear because uh, I like how light it is and how easy it is to layer up and layer down. I mean, that's the best system I've seen for not having to take my boots off just to get my under or long johns off. Dude, those full zip long johns, when you brought those out to the mountain goat hunt, I was blown away and I got some and holy cow, does that make a difference? Like not having to strip down all of your layers just to get your, just to get the wool pants off. Like, man, that changes everything. Oh man, I love that. What a simple design concept and game changer in the field. It's pretty uh, awesome to just be able to layer down and not have to take your boots off for one, you know? So I'm the type of person that if I'm as, take my boots off, especially some lace-ups. I want to find a good rock. I want to sit down. I want to have a minute. And if you could just be standing on a point and never take your eyes off of the valley that you're watching for elk in and quickly, you know, drop your outer layer, unzip your middle layer, and pull your outer layer back up, you're back to glassing again. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And I will say about the trigger sticks, you nailed it. Like I swear by them. They are unbelievable for, you know, just taking a break and getting the weight of your gear on it so that you're not having to hold it. You don't have to sit down and then stand back up, especially when you've got a pack full of meat. That's a big game changer. Um, for, for getting the right height quickly, uh, when you're going to shoot and then also to get the right height when you're glassing, because you use those as your glassing tripod and, you can be fully standing up, glassing something either higher or lower than you, and you can change that height to where you're comfortable and you've got a solid rest, which makes the world of difference from free-handing binoculars when you're glassing something at 700 yards. I mean, they're, they're equivalent to any tripod I've ever had other than not being able to take your hands off of the glass yeah, and turn your back to them. As far as... Just being able to look at something at a distance and range and know that you're hitting what you're ranging. It, I'm confident all day long in that setup. Well, we've used them. I mean, we've used them for everything. Like, they are the Swiss Army knife of tripods, I feel like. They really are. And, I mean, the other ones you can still do a lot of this stuff with. It's just not as fast. 
Yeah, and any any of them with cam lock or anything like that compared to just squeezing the trigger and letting the legs fall to the elevation that you're already holding the stick at is fantastic. I uh, had a pair go bad. This year I went on a mountain goat hunt and it kind of wore out or busted down my old pair and... Two weeks later, I was going elk hunting, and before I went elk hunting, I went and bought two more trigger sticks, one for my daughter and one to replace the ones I had because I knew I just didn't want to be caught out there without them. Yeah. We use we used it the first year that I came out, and we set up basically a sunshade yep. just to keep the sun off of us and off the meat while we were quartering and deboning it because yeah. it was hot out. Like, And that was the same year. It went from 70 in the afternoon to snow that night. And so, yeah, to have to have something like that that you can use all the time. Now, I I use the Vortex. I can't remember if it's like the High Country tripod. Super lightweight, collapses down really small. And I carry that in my pack all the time. So if we do sit down in glass for a long period of time, I'll hook my binos up to it so I can be hands-free. And it's it's really helpful. But as far as like really quick adjustments that need to be made, those trigger sticks are awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I I use the trigger stick bipod. the The country we're in, due to elevation changes and just the ground cover and everything that's around, it's hard to have a tripod. And a monopod isn't near as solid as the bipod, so I just always have used the bipods and. They suit me well. They're a little less, little less weight and a little less commotion than the tripod when you're walking through thick cover and dragging that along. But they're definitely, they're a lot more solid than the single pod. Yeah. We, I, I was talking with your nephew about it when they were just here. And one of the things that he made the mistake of this past year was he left the side-by-side without his pack. Now, that was one of the first things you told me. No matter where we go, we bring our pack. And there are certain things that never leave your pack, a fire source, emergency stuff, ammo. Toilet paper. Toilet paper, that's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Ritz crackers. Uh, We, uh, but, But we kind of have... We don't have two different packs set up all the time, but we've got two different systems that we set up within the pack, depending on what we're doing. If we're going out for the day from base camp, we set it up a certain way. If we go in for spike camp, we set it up differently. You want to talk about that a little bit and what you would bring on a day trip versus an overnight trip? Yeah, my my pack will always have fire source, a couple of snacks, uh... Definitely toilet paper. That's a big necessity. Um, uh, emergency blanket, some extra water, just kind of the basics to get you in, get you out. You know, first aid kit or, you know, just a quick emergency shelter or anything like that. But when I'm going in to stay in, I'm going to be bringing a tent. I'm going to bring an extra layer of clothes to stay out overnight. Um, definitely a sleeping bag, obviously, um, more food. And then where we elk hunt, I can't use it, but 
any of my other hunts, I'm going to carry a water purification device. And I just can't use it elk hunting because we're on top of the mountain. And generally, it's some of the areas that we hunt, a lot of the bottoms where you'll find the creeks and the streams are all private. So we just don't have good water source in there unless we found a, unless it rained and we found a puddle. But normally we carry our own water in where we elk hunt. One thing that I've now sworn by, and I've had one person reach out, and I still have to get back to them about it because I've got to get the recipe for my wife. That is the 1,000-calorie bars. She makes those every year before elk camp, and holy cow. Talk about, like, a small amount of food that will fill you up and keep you energized for the full day. I mean, they've got everything from honey to peanut butter, oats, almonds, you name it. They go in there. And so that's definitely something. Find it, find a good food source. And if it's Mountain House, it's Mountain House. I mean, they're great. They've treated us really well. And there's nothing like having a warm meal like that. But if you're just on the go and you don't want to break out the jet boil, or if you're doing a day camp in or a day hunt and you don't bring a cook system with you, to have something portable, handheld like that that you can just eat quickly and then get back on on the trail it's it's a great source uh chick-fil-a sandwiches be the other one <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, they pack pretty well and uh they'll last a week if you throw them in a cooler with keep them cool yeah chick-fil-a sandwiches man that is that's always a treat breaking those things out um what what are you using for boots um i bought a pair of crispy colorado slash Two years ago, on before the mountain go hunt, I I really like the boots. They're great for hiking. I've noticed when the weather really gets cold, they're probably not the best boot for me. And and uh, at that point, I just wear the Red Wings that I wear for work normally. But they're they've got a little more insulation and a little better suited for the cold. But my Crispies, man, I I love those things. If the weather's at all decent, those are certainly what I'm be wearing. To take care of your feet out there is a huge part of hunting. You start getting blisters or getting cold feet, it can it can slow you down or ruin a hunt pretty quickly. One thing that I've been doing lately, and some people are gonna be like, I'm not carrying the extra weight. If you just get like crocs or sanooks or hey dudes or whatever, something light. That at the end of the day, if you're if you're camping out in the backcountry, that you can just get your boots off, get them dried out, and then you still have some foot protection. Oh man, there's nothing like sliding your feet into a pair of Crocs when you're up on the mountain. Uh, I remember when we went on the mountain go hunt, and you put those on the outside of your pack. I thought this fool, and then there I was borrowing them at twelve thousand feet, <laughs> step away from the fire and take a leak. But yeah, you're totally right. That's elk hunting. We don't deal with it just because you're not there for five days. But wearing the same pair of boots for five days straight gets old, or no matter what. Yeah, and I mean they're light enough that I can I can cut that weight somewhere else if I need to. And I've never I still have yet to like fully lighten my load. You know, I'm not paying four hundred extra dollars for a tenth that's a pound less. You know, I I get stuff that's affordable to me but still will do the job and I'm okay carrying the weight um, as long as I can still be comfortable out there. So 
Man, this, I feel like we covered a ton in this. Is there anything else that you would share with the listeners or first-time hunters or people who have gone out and maybe have yet to have success that you think would help them accomplish their goal? Um, number one, man, it's elk country is huge. You can get out there and you can do it about anywhere. Just get out there. And that's the other thing. There's plenty of opportunities for a first-timer or even somebody that's tried and hasn't had success. If you've been to the same spot a couple of years, branch out and find something new. Over the course of my elk hunting career, we hunted eight different locations. And it wasn't until we found this last spot that we kind of settled in and decided that's where elk camp's going to be until we stop having luck. Then we'll figure something else out. But to get out there and just be in the field and start learning figure it out it, like i said there's plenty of states that have good opportunity for hunting public land you just have to find the little cranny that they're hiding in and you can have success year after year and that's all we've done yeah i i want to touch on one more thing i forgot to ask when we were talking about the rifle system you had mentioned you're shooting at 270 now before I ever elk hunted, before I ever met you, I talked to a guy who had elk hunted and he told me, do not go out there with anything under like the 30 caliber family. But you've had success with the 270. I think in my mind, it all comes down to shot placement. It doesn't matter what gun you're shooting. If you aren't confident in making the right shot in the vitals, you're not going to have success. But with the 270, what ammo are you using to get the job done? Um, 270 is a pretty light bullet. Uh, I got really lucky and bought a used gun. They had a lot of money put into it, and I got it at a great price. It's, that gun in particular really likes just a simple Remington core lock, 150 grain bullet. Not everybody's gonna get that lucky. You just gotta get you gotta find the bullet and the and the caliber that's gonna shoot consistently and more than anything, just being able to put it in a pipe plate. It's gonna be what does the job. Um like I said, I got lucky that it'll it likes the cheap ammo. But it's about being consistent and that gun just naturally it shoots very well. So that's more important, I think, than the caliber. Yeah. And in fact, my daughter this year shot two elk with a 6.5 Creedmoor and shot them both on the same day out of the same hurt. So you can do it with about anything. You just have to be able to shoot accurately and hit them where you're aiming. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll say there's a lot of people out there who spend a ton of money on the rifle, a ton of money on the glass, but then because of high ammo prices they'll only buy one box of ammo and they'll just shoot that no matter how accurate it is. You need to try out different ammo and see what ammo your gun likes best. And it might not be, say you've got a Remington 700. One guy's Remington 700 might really like Winchester ammo and others might like Hornady. Buy four or five boxes and shoot them 
and see what you like. And you might have to spend 150 bucks, but at the end of the day, you're going to be happy you did if it's the difference between wounding an animal in the backcountry and actually making a successful shot. So with the 300 I just bought, I have two different boxes of ammo, same bullet weight, just a different bullet on the end of it. And they're both from the same manufacturer, same feet per second, you name it, they're line up other than the bullet itself. And one of them I'm shooting half MOA pattern or groups with, and then the next one I'm not even on paper. And when I figure out where it's at and put it on paper, I'm not consistent. So I would think I had seven or eight different brands and makes and models of ammunition before I found the one that it shoots consistently. And that's going to be the ammunition that I take it out to 500 yards with. So if I, if I was just going to the store and buying whatever 300 wind mag I could find, I, you can't ask that repetition from any different type or different bullet weight. I mean, just plus or minus four or five, five grains of bullet weight is huge game changer and accuracy and consistency. Yeah. If, if you find the ammo that you like, buy a couple boxes of it Yeah, or that your gun likes. I've, it's not like duck hunting where you can just dig all the miscellaneous shells out and shoot at a duck. Like don't bring out a mixed bag of ammo and hope to have the same consistency or accuracy with it. Find the stuff, shoot it enough to be confident in it. And then only bring that ammo with you. Even if you have to buy a new box on the way out. And at least 13 rounds. At least 13 rounds. For some people in the party, maybe more. But yeah. uh, no, I think I think you can attest. Once you practice, like you should you should be pretty confident. And bring enough ammo though. If your if your gun does get dropped or bang hard against something, you might have to recite it in out in the field. And yeah. don't be afraid to do it. Sure, you might blow that day of hunting or scare an animal off, but you'd rather be able to finish out your hunt feeling confident than just guessing that it's still on. Absolutely. I, uh, I'd probably drive a little ways from my honey hole before I fired those shots, Hmm. but yeah, it might take one and it might take a box. I, I don't go up as far as base camp. I make sure I have an extra box or two in the camper. When I hike out into the woods, I'll carry a whole box just because, like you said, you never know what happens. And if you end up crippling one and chasing it, you're not going to get that 300-yard shot. You might have to lob one out to 600 if that's possibly the last time you're ever going to see that animal again. That's not something I encourage, but if I've got a wounded elk moving across an opening and... I'm only going to get one more shot at it. I'm going to sling as much lead that direction as I can. Yeah, and I mean, they're tough animals. Like, you you can think, oh, man, the right shot placement, you're going to drop it. Hopefully that's the case, but it's not a 120-pound doe whitetail at 50 yards. These animals, I, I remember the first year... As I was gearing up for the hunt, I was watching a bunch of elk hunting videos, just trying to get as much information as I could. And one video I came across, these guys had set up on an elk. They were at 350 yards. And this elk was broadside on an opposing hillside. And 
I watched him shoot five times perfectly behind the shoulder and this elk never walked. It never ran. It never did anything. It basically just stood there. I think the last two shots, it had moved about five yards. He shot five times through the vitals before that elk went down. Well, you were there two years ago when I got my last bull and we pulled a broadhead out of its shoulder. I mean, that, that elk was hit two months before I killed it. And it was, it was running pretty well the day that I shot it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that just goes to show you how tough they are. The archery season had been over for, I guess not two months, but probably 25 days. And that elk was still alive and still climbing up those mountains. Yeah, and that thing was, I mean, it was lodged deep in its shoulder. I mean, to the point where when we quartered it out, we lost the whole front right shoulder of that animal. Oh, yeah. it w- The broadhead was six or seven inches long with the part of the arrow that was still stuck to it, and it was all below the skin. We didn't find it until we actually tried to cut that shoulder off, and we found it inside the shoulder. Yeah. So to think that the animal can survive and, I mean, be in pretty good health to the point where it was still moving around, like, it didn't look like it was on the verge of death by any means. And it's been walking around with only three usable legs, basically, or what you would think. I mean, it was literally rotting from the inside out to where the point, or to the point where as we cut it open, you could basically rip that whole shoulder off. Yeah. And it was still on its feet, walking like normal. Yep. But that's a shot placement issue, too. That was high shoulder and terrible place to hit an elk with a bow. Yeah. But that goes back to finding the right rifle and the right round for it and be able to consistently hit where you want to hit. I think if you're going in the backcountry hunting elk, if if you have... Generally speaking, I think a 200-yard zero is a good idea. Um, at least the country that we hunt. I mean, could be different for some rancher that's got a little wheat field behind his house and he catches them out there every day. But for us, an open country like we hunt, 200 yards is about the minimum that we're going to get a good clean shot at one and easily out to 400 yards. So being comfortable... In those ranges is a big thing. Um, I don't think uh, we hunt some pretty open country, but I don't think I would, even if I stretch my rifle out, I don't think I'd be confident to shoot one more than 500 yards for the chance that if you make a bad shot, your follow up shots are only going to get further and further away. And a wounded elk can cover a lot of ground. (laughs) I don't want them to be. I'd rather shoot him at 350 and then have a chance to lob one at 500 instead of shoot wound him at 500 and not have a chance shooting him at 7, 8 as you last watch him disappear. Yeah. Yeah, and elk country is not the country to be chasing wounded animals. I mean, there's there are definitely spots in our unit where the animal would be unrecoverable. Like, unless you had repelling gear or a helicopter, you won't get them. And so you want them to go down within sight, even if that means 
multiple follow-up shots, which for Eastern hunters, it seems crazy, you know, like just popping off rounds left and right at a deer, but you, sometimes you just have to do it. Yeah. Our, uh, the rule in our camp is if it's still on its feet, you keep shooting. And once one person's hit it, if it's still on its feet and not moving, we let them finish it best we can. But if it's moving and on its way out of town, we, anybody that's got an opportunity to shoot at it, feel free to do what you can to anchor that elk because it's nothing worse than losing one. Knock on wood, it hasn't happened for us. But we'll do everything in our power to prevent that. Yeah. Putting a bunch of holes through one quarter and losing a whole shoulder of meat is a lot better than having it die out there on its own and never recovering it because you didn't want to pull the trigger again. Yeah. So, well, dude, I think that's a good spot to wrap this one up. Thanks for hopping on. The only thing to do next is get out there and put this all to practice in October. Absolutely. I can't wait, man. Only, uh, what, maybe about 20 more Mondays. Yeah. I, I always look forward to the text where it's like, Hey man, no more Mondays, <laughs> no more Tuesdays, no more Wednesdays. I just know I'm about to be driving out to Colorado to hang out. Yeah. So thanks, man. Good talk. And hopefully you guys can put this to use on your own elk hunt. And that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I hope you guys are enjoying these. Sean is a wealth of knowledge and information about elk hunting. I owe almost all of my hunting success out West to the information that I've got from Sean, to his help, even to like packing out the meat with me. But he knows so much and he loves getting new people out there and helping them be successful on their first hunt. And I know nobody better. Like there's no one that I can think of that is better at doing that that's not getting paid for it. I mean like this is totally just cause he's an awesome guy and loves sharing his passions with other people. And so I hope you guys can take some of these tips and tricks and strategies and gear recommendations and reviews away from this episode and implement it into maybe your own over-the-counter elk hunt this year. I know I'm getting super pumped. I will be out there for sure. Second rifle season. I don't think I'm going to miss another second rifle in Colorado. I absolutely love it. And even my buddies are like, dude, you coming back this year? We're going to go to the new spot again. Are we going to try to figure it out? I was like, nope, you guys got to fly solo. As much as I enjoy hunting with them, this is a tradition that I don't want to pass up or miss out on anymore. And Sean and I, it was really funny. Before and after the call, we were talking for hours about strategy, what we're going to implement this year that maybe we've talked about in years past but hadn't yet. And we got into it a little bit about the difference between whitetail hunting and elk hunting. And I wish I would have left the stuff rolling for it because it was a really funny conversation where we went back and forth pleading our case of me. I was like, dude, you should not go in the woods after daylight. Like you're, you're not walking in right as shooting hour start for whitetail. You gotta, you gotta be in there already. And I mean, there were several cans cracked throughout this whole process. And so it got pretty funny. Uh, and not really heated at all, but it was a good time. So I hope that I hope that you guys have success this year, and I hope that you guys are scouting and planning and 
getting your application results back see to see what big game tags you drew for out west or maybe for different states. I know I'm looking forward to it. I've only got about a week left before I find out on my moose hunts. And gosh, that'd be so cool. Anyways, I could just keep going on and on and on about this season, what's coming up, and how excited I am. But I'll leave it at that. So get out there and chase a new adventure. <laughs>